But now you say, Go, tell your Lord that Elijah is here. As soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you I know not where. So when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have revered the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets, fifty to a cave, and provided them with bread and water? Yet now you say, go tell your Lord that Elijah is here. He will surely kill me. These are the words of Obadiah, an important official in the court of King Ahab of Israel, as recorded in the 18th chapter of the first book of Kings. He is talking to Elijah, the famous prophet, and basically explaining why he doesn't trust him. But, wait a second, did he just say that he hid a hundred people in two caves, and that he hid them from King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, that is, from his employers? Now, doesn't that sound like there might be a story behind that? A story that, unfortunately, doesn't get fully told in the Bible. Maybe it is time to remedy that. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 2.8 100 Prophets, 2 Caves When Ahab was crowned king of Israel and ascended his throne in Samaria, it was a great day. He had what his father, King Omri, had never had, stability and legitimacy. Omri had had to fight for everything. He had only gained the kingdom as a result of a bloody civil war. He had built his own capital city on the hill of Samaria and won the trust of the people inch by inch. After twelve years of tumultuous rule, he finally found peace in resting with his ancestors and passed his kingdom on to his son Ahab. And Ahab wanted nothing more than to build on to the legacy that he had received from his father by bringing prosperity to his people he called in his closest friend and most faithful servant, Obadiah, to whom he had entrusted the care and management of everything he owned. Obadiah, he said, I have done it. The kingdom is mine, and now I am going to build prosperity for all of my people. It's going to be the greatest kingdom ever seen, and I need you to make it happen for me. Me? asked Obadiah. What could I possibly do? What can you do? You are going to be the key. Do you know who the greatest traders are in the whole world? Everyone knows that, replied Obadiah. It's the Sidonians, 
their ships and their caravans travel all over the world and come back filled with gold and silver and precious stones. Yes, said the young king, and Israel is going to be part of that great trading empire. I want you to go to the Sidonians, and you are going to negotiate a trade deal and a marriage. Go to the king of Sidon and bring me back his daughter to be my bride. So Obadiah went, and he did as his lord had commanded. The negotiations were long and hard, but he succeeded. He returned to Samaria proudly bringing with him the princess Jezebel, reputed to be the most beautiful woman in the entire world. And that was how Ahab and Jezebel became the greatest power couple of the ninth century, known far and wide by their super-couple name, Jezahab, a fact that is unfortunately lost to history. Under their leadership, Israel truly did grow in wealth and influence until it dwarfed the tiny little kingdom of Judah to the south and everyone who was at all connected to the king and the queen, or who was involved in the trading, became fabulously wealthy. Obadiah watched all of this with interest. It was his job to take care of the king's possessions, and make sure that he prospered, and that is what he did. He also watched the king's friends grow in power, wealth, and influence. It was all very impressive. There was just one thing that bothered him. Yes, there was a great deal of wealth flowing into the kingdom, but only a few seemed to be enjoying its blessings. In fact, many of the people were finding themselves in a worse situation. In order to participate in the Sidonian trade, Ahab's friends needed to produce ever more goods and to get those goods, they needed bigger fields. They started to push the poorer folks off of their family farms using various strategies, some legal, some not so much. People were being placed into increasingly desperate situations. Honestly, it was not all that surprising when opposition to Ahab and Jezebel's rule began to rise. The hotbed of the resistance was in the region of Gilead, in the eastern part of the kingdom. It began among the prophets, a group of people, men and women, who had existed in the land as long as anyone could remember. They were attached to various sanctuaries and altars spread throughout the land. When people came to offer their sacrifices, they would consult with the local prophet and, for a small fee, receive answers to their pressing personal questions. They were truly of little consequence, and previous kings had mostly ignored them and left them to do their work. But something had happened in Gilead. 
Maybe the local prophets had noticed that there were more and more questions from the people who came to worship, who were facing dire situations. They were more connected to the common people than were the priests or the Levites who often benefited from the gifts and offerings of the nobles and their friends. The prophets became sympathetic listeners as people poured out their pain. But even that would not have caused the problems that it did if someone had not acted to give the discontent of the prophets some focus and direction. His name was Elijah, and he came from Tishba. He spoke to the prophets about a powerful idea, the idea that Yahweh, the god of the local hill tribes, had given the land to the people of Israel so that they might live on it forever. He proclaimed that no one, not even the king, could take away the land that belonged to any farmer in Israel. The land could not be bought or traded or even taken away because of mounting debts. And even the king was expected to respect the will of the God in this. It was a ridiculous and laughable idea. But as it spread, it began to threaten the great prosperity that Jezahab and their friends had been enjoying so much. It was starting to disrupt everything that they had built. Something that they were sure would eventually benefit everyone, as the great wealth that was being accumulated at the very top of the society slowly trickled down to everyone else. So they decided that the rebels needed to be silenced before they could cause any more damage. As Ahab's most trusted servant, Obadiah was brought in early as they rolled out the campaign. It was under his direction that soldiers were sent out to particular trouble spots. Obadiah knew where the king's policies were meeting with the greatest resistance, where storehouses had been broken into and looted, where people had been withholding taxes and tributes. So he was the one who directed the king's soldiers to round up local prophets and other troublemakers. And it was all just supposed to be about persuasion. The king's agents were just supposed to talk to them, convince them that it was in everyone's interest for things to just settle down a bit. But there were incidents. Some of the prophets were not willing to back down. Some of the king's men got a little too enthusiastic in their persuasion techniques. Obadiah was getting more and more uncomfortable by the day. Obadiah would never forget the day when Elijah himself came strolling into the palace in Samaria. He had arrived quite unexpectedly. Security in the palace was lax in those days, though that was something that was about to change. And Obadiah was the only one in the outer chambers when the man of God arrived. He was tall, 
long of hair and of beard, and wore a coat made of camel hair, fastened around his waist with a leather belt. He looked at Obadiah, assessing him at a glance, before announcing that he was going in to see the king and the queen. Obadiah should have stopped him, should have told him that the king was not to be disturbed at his work, or maybe even warn him that he was likely to be killed for his impudence if he did barge in. But Obadiah did none of that. There was just something about the man that made him want to see what was going to happen next. What happened next was that the prophet barged in on the king and the queen at their dinner and announced that there was going to be a drought. As Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word, was his pronouncement. And then he slipped out a side door, down a hallway, and through a window before any guards could even be summoned. Jezebel kind of went a little crazy after that. She was from a different land. In Sidon, her father, the king, had been an absolute ruler and a priest as well. He didn't have priests or prophets telling him what he could or couldn't do. He was the one who told them. She shouted at Ahab that she would get this whole problem under control and do it quick. And Ahab knew better than to tell her that things were a little different in Israel, that she might find that it didn't quite work out like things did in Sidon. On the Queen's orders, the visits to the disruptive prophets became much more hostile in short order. It was when some of them just disappeared that Obadiah began to think that he could no longer stand on the sidelines. The queen had begun to hear disturbing stories. It seemed that when the king's men arrived at the local shrines, the prophets had often disappeared just before they had arrived. It was uncanny. And it happened so often that the agents began to get frightened. These prophets did command a lot of respect in their communities. The king's men were worried that it was the god who was warning them perhaps allowing them to escape by supernatural means. Perhaps it was the God who was warning them, but if it was, God was definitely using Obadiah to transmit the message. Yes, he was a faithful servant to his master Ahab, and he was maybe even a little bit in love with Jezebel. I mean, who wasn't? But something just felt wrong to him. He was all in favor of trade, and he really did believe that it was for the good of the whole nation if Israel produced more goods, but he just couldn't stand for this mistreatment of these men and women of God. 
Before long, Obadiah had a very big problem. A few of his faithful servants were indeed going around and gathering up local prophets in various places. They brought them, or in some cases had them make their own way, to Obadiah's family farm, where his wife and his eldest son would welcome them and offer them hospitality. But as the ranks of the fleeing prophets grew, this became more and more dangerous. He had to find some place to hide them when the heat was on. He had discovered the caves himself when he was a young boy of only seven. He had been out exploring in the hills with his best friend, Eli, when he climbed behind a massive boulder to discover a great black hole, partially covered by vegetation. Inside, there was a long passage with two openings, one on the left and one on the right, and these led to two large caverns. The boys had created simple torches and explored the caves extensively over many months. There were beautiful stalactites and stalagmites and other rock formations that led them to think that the place had been created as a wonder by some supernatural being. One day they even followed the sound of dripping water to discover a small spring filled with water that was so clear and cold that Obadiah still considered it the best he had ever tasted. For years Obadiah and Eli had kept that place as their own personal secret. They had escaped there whenever they could. Eli had grown up a servant in Obadiah's household, and often suffered beatings when his work was not deemed acceptable. Despite their difference in status, Obadiah had always only seen Eli as a friend and equal, and when things got too unbearable for his friends, he would suggest to his parents that he needed some help or the security of a companion on an errand, and they would give Eli leave from his household duties to accompany their son. Their work quickly accomplished, for they were both very bright and gifted young men. They would then retire for days or even weeks at a time at their special retreat. They would hunt or gather all of the food they needed and live like Samson or Jacob or the other heroes of old. In their hearts, these caves became a place of security, comfort, and all of the ideals that typified their friendship. Now, so many years later, Obadiah had taken his friend and servant, Eli, with him as he rose within the kingdom of Samaria to his position of considerable power and responsibility. In many ways, his sympathy for the prophets and for the people they were standing with stemmed from his relationship with Eli. He knew the quality that was in this man, that he was dedicated, hard-working, and wise. But rather than living the life that he should have lived, living with dignity on his own family's land, Eli had been sold into slavery for the debts that his family had racked up after a number of failed harvests, and that was how he had become a slave in Obadiah's household. Yes, 
Eli had been fortunate to end up eventually with a master as kind as Obadiah and one who treated him more as a friend than as a slave. But Obadiah could not help but dwell on what his friend had lost and what he could have been. It was Eli who suggested the solution to their present problem. Jezebel was getting a little bit irrational, sending out the men under her power with ever greater demands that they shut down the opposition that was growing throughout the land, and especially in Gilead. It seemed inevitable that sooner or later all of the fleeing prophets, there were at least a hundred by now, who had gathered in Obadiah's home, would be discovered. It was no simple matter to move all of the prophets to the caves. For one thing, such a large party moving together would be bound to attract attention. And then, of course, there was the question of how to feed them and provide for the other basic necessities of life. But, of course, there was a good reason why Ahab had been willing to trust all of his possessions into the hands of a man like Obadiah. He was the best manager, administrator, and organizer in the entire land. And in Eli, he had an assistant who supported him in all things. In short order, they had the prophets organized into small groups and moving by various routes to the caves. Provisions were delivered regularly. Most of all, no one outside of the group was aware that anything at all was happening out in the hills. The prophets were in the two caves for three months in the end. The hardships that they endured together changed them. They had up until then, remained fiercely independent. Traditionally, they had not even all spoken for the same God, though they had a vague idea that there was one God who appeared in various forms in all of their sanctuaries. But as they discussed together in the caves, they found a common cause in the message that had been proclaimed by the Tishbite and swore allegiance to the God of Israel, to Yahweh, above all others. It was truly in those caves that they became a movement, known as the Company of the Prophets. They all saw Elijah of Tishba as their leader, though Elijah himself was not among them. He had disappeared shortly after announcing the drought, and was said to be hiding, ironically enough, among the Sidonians. But whether Elijah was with them or not, there was no denying that in those two caves, something new was unleashed that would transform the spiritual landscape of Israel.
What are you doing here? Obadiah couldn't believe it. There, standing in front of him, was the most wanted man in all of Israel, Elijah of Tishba. It had been three months since Obadiah had sent the prophets home from his caves. Things had settled down somewhat, but only because Jezebel had decided that she really just had one enemy, that she needed to stop chasing after the little fish and go after the ringleader, Elijah himself. But even more than that, everyone was concerned about the ongoing drought. Things had gotten so bad that even the king was starting to worry about feeding his horses and other animals. He had sent Obadiah out to scout for some fodder and bring it back to his stables. The search had proven quite unfruitful up until this point, but now Obadiah had found a much bigger prize, and he wasn't even supposed to be looking for it. Do you know that everyone is looking for you, he said to the prophet? Jezebel is screaming for your blood up and down the palace, and you show up here? Now? Elijah seemed entirely unconcerned. Yep, he said. Obadiah, I want you to go and tell the king that I'm ready to talk. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't you know that I'm on your side? Didn't anyone tell you that I hid a hundred prophets, fifty to a cave, to keep them safe from Jezahab? Why would you do this to me? Because you know very well that I'm going to go merrily off to see the king, and by the time I get back here with the guards, you're going to have disappeared, because the spirit of Yahweh will call you off to do something else. No way. Find someone else to get killed for running your errands. On the life of Yahweh, I promise you, swore Elijah, I will be here. I will not leave until you return with the king. And so Obadiah went to bring the king, and true to his word, Elijah was there. Now, if the queen had come, she likely would have had the prophet arrested and under torture within minutes. But Ahab did have some respect for the position of a prophet. Jezebel likely would have called it superstition, but it was actually a powerful influence on the king's life. And so he spoke to Elijah, who took advantage of the respect afforded him to set up what he called a little showdown. Obadiah knelt on top of Mount Carmel. He rocked back and forth, and for a while he tried to forget everything that had just happened. But he couldn't do it. He just had to close his eyes, and it replayed over and over again. The blood, the slaughter, the screams. Elijah had set the entire thing up. A showdown, he called it a once-and-for-all challenge that would decide which god would be the supreme god in the land of Israel, 
Would it be the god Baal, the god of fertility and trade and wealth accumulated by the strong? Or would it be Yahweh, the god who had given the land to the families of Israel, that they might live and eat? It had seemed like a good idea, a chance for each side to have their views heard, but when it finally happened it hadn't felt like that. The representatives of the king's point of view, the traders and their priests and representatives, got up and spoke reasonably enough, but facing them had been a group who were not at all interested in rational discussion. They were a mob, in fact, a gang of people who had come from all over that land to air their grievances. They weren't interested in the finer points of economic theory, they didn't care if the increases in international trade would eventually bring benefits that would accrue to all. They just knew that they had lost their family farms, that they were hungry, and that they had a god on their side. So, after the king's people had been heard, Elijah got up. He stood alone but he very quickly had the greater part of the crowd on his side. He spoke only briefly, but every word seemed to only rile up the crowd ever more. The king's men started to look nervously at each other. This was not going to end well. Obadiah himself, though a court official, had not stood among them on this day. He was beginning to think that that had been a very good idea. The whole confrontation had been set up with religious sacrifices, of course. That was just the way these things were done. After the speaking was done, sacrifices were slaughtered. You couldn't talk about policy for the kingdom, after all, without placating the gods who were the protection of the kingdom. For some reason, though, the altar dedicated to Baal failed to start burning when it was lit. The fire just smoldered a bit and then went out as the people tending it started to restack the wood and add more tinder. Meanwhile, the altar to Yahweh flared up immediately with a great blaze. A great murmuring went up from the already agitated crowd. Someone shouted that it was an omen, and that they should listen to the prophet of Yahweh alone. Elijah, for his part, did nothing to dissuade the crowd. Instead, he started shouting, Yahweh indeed is God! Yahweh indeed is God! And the crowd took up the chant. Then Elijah cried out, Seize the prophets of Baal! Do not let one of them escape! It was like watching a dam break. All of the anger and discontent, all of the pent-up fear for the future, suddenly breached the retaining wall that had been holding it back. The people burst forward with a cry and quickly grabbed hold of some of the priests and minor officials. They ripped off their clothes, struck and beat them, and some of them were carried off to a nearby valley where they were murdered. Obadiah could find no other word than murder. 
And now he knelt here wondering at what had happened. Wondering if it wasn't all his fault. This was not what he had wanted. In fact, he had only become involved because he deplored the violence that was being contemplated and planned against the prophets. Now it seemed he had saved the prophets, but by throwing them together in these two caves, created a monster that would unleash much more violence throughout the land. Could anything good possibly come from the bloodshed that Obadiah had seen on this day? Suddenly Obadiah heard a cry from the far slope of the mountain, the place where the great summit began its descent into the sea. He had seen the Tishbite wander over that direction some time ago. Now he returned, running. He had girded up his robe around his loins, and he was moving unbelievably fast as he shouted, Rain! Rain! It is coming! Obadiah looked up as the first great drop splashed onto his forehead. The story of Obadiah hiding the prophets of the Lord in a couple of caves is only mentioned in passing, included in the Book of Kings just because it offers proof of the man's devotion to the Lord. But I always wondered about that story. It contained one very big contradiction. Why would Obadiah, an apparently faithful servant of the king, be hiding the king's enemies from him? so I decided to explore the internal conflicts of Obadiah by telling his story. I kind of feel as if I discovered something more than I bargained for by doing so. It turns out, at least the way I have come to see the story, that it is not just the story of a hundred people in two caves, but of the origin of a movement that transformed the spiritual landscape of ancient Israel. Not bad for a story that is told in only a couple of lines in the actual biblical text. If you enjoyed this story, please come back again next week for another take on an ancient biblical story. Tell other people and rate and review this episode on iTunes or some other platform so that other people can find it and hear it too. The theme music for retelling the Bible is Ada, and the mood music for this episode is all this. The music is by Kevin McLeod, licensed under the Creative Commons, and can be found at incompetech.com. Send your requests, comments, and questions to at Retelling Bible on Twitter, or to our Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. Show notes and commentary for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, 
W. Scott McCandless.